for Pacifica Radio, September 5th, 2021. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton, back here again after an extended fun drive on KPFK. I am the editorial director of Antiwar.com, and I'm the author of the book Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Before that, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,500 of them now, going back to 2003 at scotthorton.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. All right, enough of that. And to our guest, the best. The great Gareth Porter. Welcome back to the show. Gareth, how are you doing? Hi, Scott. I'm fine. Glad to be back again. Very happy to have you here. And uh, everybody, you know, Gareth wrote Perils of Dominance about Vietnam, manufactured crisis about (laughs) uh, the Iranian nuclear program, and I don't know, somewhere around 5,000 articles or something since the W. Bush years on the terror war, every aspect of it, and especially, oh man, he was so good on the Afghan surge back 10 years ago and all of this. And uh, so very happy to talk with you, Gareth. Oh, and I should mention, um, he writes primarily now for thegrayzone.com, Max Blumenthal and the crew over there at The Gray Zone. Speaking of which, you have a piece at The Gray Zone now about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but one narrow aspect of it, at least to, to start with here on the show today, Gareth, and that is the mass media's take. And I say take singular because there is only one take on Joe Biden's withdrawal and end of the war in Afghanistan on all of TV news and all the newspapers and all the pundits. And everybody knows, apparently, everybody with power and influence and a Harvard education knows (laughs) that we absolutely should not have ended this war and that this is the worst thing Joe Biden's ever done in his life. Something like that. What do you think? It is something like that, yes. I mean, you know, the the mass media, the, the corporate media definitely agree uh, wholeheartedly uh, that the United States should not have left yet. Now, none of these people, presumably, <laughs> would try to argue that the United States should stay forever in Afghanistan. But what they do argue is that this was premature, it was too fast, and it was done without... Uh, the president listening to his military advisors, i.e. the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, particularly, and and therefore uh, not really taking care of the primary U.S. national security interests that should have been uh, kept in mind as we talked about uh, internally within that, not we, they Uh, talked about internally in terms of uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, Uh, that is to say, the concern about counterterrorism, and of course, not sufficient concern about uh, rescuing our allies from the clutches of of the Taliban. Uh, So it was that those two twin themes that everyone basically agreed upon. There were variations in terms of how much emphasis was put on one versus the other in in various uh, outlets and at various times. 
uh, during the days immediately, you know, following the uh, the withdrawal uh, by the Biden administration. But but that's the that's the overall uh, situation. I think uh, the the overall description of how the mass media uh, really dealt with this with this problem. Mm-hmm. Well. I mean, it must be said that, boy, did they screw up on ending this thing, leaving all of those weapons in the hands of the Taliban and <laughs> and and creating a situation where they were completely dependent on the Taliban's graciousness to let them escape peacefully to the airport and out of the country and all of this. And, and then culminating also in, I mean, it's almost perfectly fitting as an end to the war. A suicide bombing that killed 13 American troops and then a revenge drone strike that killed two families on the way out the door. It's just the whole thing is, you know, it's hard to find a right winger saying hyperbolic stuff about how bad the withdrawal was who's not correct about it, really. Well, it was, of course, uh, a mess. There's no question about that. And, you know, the, the question is, what was the fundamental Cause, a cause of of that whole series of screw ups, and and I think this is where the corporate media uh, steer the public uh, very very wrong. Instead of really discussing the fundamental problem, which was that the uh, intelligence community and the military were so confident that they had a an army and a regime that could last for a while longer at least they just did not understand just how dicey the whole situation was and and i must say you know it is so reminiscent of uh, exactly what happened uh with vietnam in 1975 i mean i mean it's almost a carbon copy of uh the the situation that prevailed within the uh us government in regard to the end of the war in Vietnam in April, May, uh, well, April of 1975. I've been reading about it myself, so I'm, I'm sort of uh, essentially uh, uh, amazed at the, uh, the parallels between the two. And, and the fundamental, fundamental parallel, the most important one, is that uh, the entire U.S. national security state uh, in both cases thought we had plenty of time uh, now, there were differences, of course, within the national security state, but the people who had the greatest power uh, within that structure uh, were, were confident that they could ride this out for a while longer. There was no hurry about getting people out, okay? Um, and, and that was the, the fundamental mistake, certainly uh, in, in both cases, that, that they felt that they could, uh, you know, so take their time and serve other uh, political interests um, and not have to worry about starting the, uh, the process of uh, evacuation of both Americans and uh, the South Vietnamese in the case of Vietnam and the Afghans in the case of this current uh, recent war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that was the fundamental problem, which the, the um, media response uh, over the the period of a couple of weeks, uh, completely ignored. I mean, they they didn't really talk about that. Instead, they wanted to blame Biden personally 
for having screwed up. Now, you know, I mean, I'm not going to defend Biden's uh, all of Biden's decisions. Um, I'm sure he made some mistakes, but this was in the context of a much broader screw up by the national security state, which is the fundamental reason for this uh, you know, complete, uh, you know, utter chaos. And uh, as you point out, I mean, a situation where American troops were unnecessarily killed. And, uh, and of course, this final uh, drone strike, which was supposed to be uh, just killing ISIS-K uh, terrorists, but in fact killed 10 members of, uh, of two families who lived uh, very close to where that car was, apparently they didn't care about collateral damage under the circumstances. They, they felt they had to strike at that very moment, or they didn't really have to, but they went ahead and did it anyway. Mm. Well, I saw this. It started out as a claim by Liz Sly from the Washington Post, so I wasn't sure until I saw it was confirmed later that they left behind the guys from Radio Free America or Radio Liberty or whatever they call it now. They just forgot about them or something. <laughs> they left yeah, behind well, hundreds of Americans. And in some cases, yeah. these are Afghans who got American citizenship, but they're really Afghans and they're staying. But in some cases, they're not. In some cases, these are Americans from here who got left behind there, even government employees. And look, I'm not the best on time zones and everything, but... Didn't they leave a day early? And they still had, you know, more than half a day. I think they had still 24 hours before they had to go by the end of the 31st. And here they were all wrapped up on the 30th while they left a couple of hundred people behind. And I'm sorry because it's happening to me too, right? It's such a ridiculous thing that here we are distracted onto the point when, as you're saying, it kind of serves as cover for the failure of the whole war. And here the right. government and the army completely evaporated. And so, yes, it came down to a strange question of Taliban providing security at the airport because the ANA didn't exist anymore. <laughs> so, did not exist. yeah, did not exist. And, and, you know, again, I just I can't emphasize enough the startling parallelism between what happened in 1975 with regard to Vietnam and what happened yeah. Uh, just in the past few weeks. And listen, I mean, it should be said here as Chalmers Johnson, who was a former CIA contractor analyst and professor at USC, said numerous times that reading antiwar.com is far more informative than a CIA daily briefing. And that just listening to my show and reading those headlines as put together by Eric Garris and Jason Ditz and now by Dave DeCamp every day, no one who's a regular reader of antiwar.com was confused about what was happening in Afghanistan. Right, right, right. I, I couldn't agree more. But but even uh, uh, on top of that, we had a situation where uh, people who were calling it correctly within the intelligence uh, establishment, the, the, the intelligence network of the United States in both cases uh, were ignored because it didn't fit the interests of the people on top. Um, you know, uh, there was clearly a, a situation where uh, the naysayers, the doubters were basically uh, pushed aside. Right. And th th this is the way the system always works. When well, the think about, States you know, the counterfactual of, you know, because the major crisis here is leaving all those weapons in the hands of the Taliban from the ANA, just, you know, turning them over and and running away or surrendering. 
Um, and then, of course, also, you know, the crisis of the civilians left there. The only way that I can think of that could have prevented this, it's, you know, you're alluding to this, but like, let's do the narrative, right? Biden would have had to come right out after assuming the presidency and say, we're sticking with the deadline. You yeah. heard me, General. No delay, because it was, as we know, it was all the Pentagon, you know, basically pushing him and pushing him to review and review and review. You got to let us leave some troops and all this. He should have told them, hell no. And if you want to fight about it, you're fired. We're leaving by the first. And he would have had to announce to the American people in a big speech that the uh, puppet government in Kabul and the army that we built are an absolute joke. And they could never stand. And we're betting like 90 to 10 that they're going to cease to exist and that if we leave all these weapons with the ANA, they're going to end up in the hands of the Taliban. So we're taking their weapons away and we're pulling all of our civilians out for their own protection because we don't think the Kabul government can last. And so then just think of all of the criticism that they would have faced that, of course, if you take all the weapons from the Afghan army and if you withdraw your civilians in a way that, you know, uh, portrays your absolute lack of confidence in the government you created there, they would have been blamed for causing the fall of the army oh, and the government end. there. But Biden would have had to be man enough to say, I don't care. You can blame me all you want, but that's the truth. And I'm making the bet that in order to keep civilians safe and keep our howitzers and helicopters out of the hands of these goons, we're just going to really make a clean break with the Afghan war and come home and do it right now and and to the nth degree. And when I put it that way, I can hear your gears turning and the audience too. There's no way in the world they could do that. The Democrats no, no, never it, tell that much truth in a row ever about anything. Well, they that that's true. That it's the nature of the beast that they just don't operate that way. But had the, had that been done, had uh Biden had the cojones, if you will, uh, to to really take that that position, he could have brought this off very well. I mean, because we know that the Taliban were in favor of a controlled ending. They didn't want to have chaos any more than we did. Um, and so, you know, they would have been willing. And, and you know, uh, you know, I think this is clear from a whole series of indicators they were willing to have the United States begin the withdrawal early under conditions that would be arrived at through talks between the United States and the Taliban. And that would have, that, that could have been started in April and the government, you know, obviously would have crumbled uh, very quickly, no question about that. But it would have been a situation where there was still a, a controlled ending, uh, allowing the United States to complete its military withdrawal and uh, to get civilians out of the country. That's a trade-off that that I firmly believe the Taliban would have been glad to uh, to have uh, negotiated. Mm -hmm. um, I, and go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, there's a report in the Washington Post that the Taliban said, listen, we won't enter Kabul. If you guys right. will secure Kabul until you get all your people right. out, that's cool with us. And that the Biden people said, well, I guess we don't have enough men to do that. So, no, come on in. And they did offer that option, um, but it was a bit it was a bit too late uh, at that point in terms yeah. of what the United States needed to do. But but in any case, the, I, that that's part of the reason why I think that the Taliban would have been ready to agree to a broader 
set of detailed arrangements Mm -hmm. for the United States uh, to do everything over a period of weeks in an orderly fashion. Um, And to give them more time really to prepare for uh, going into Kabul and having to be in charge of it Mm -hmm. because they weren't really ready, I don't think. I mean, it's clear that this happened pretty fast Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they they could have used more time uh, basically to prepare themselves. Hold on just one second. Be right back. So you're constantly buying things from Amazon.com. Well, that makes sense. They bring it right to your house. So what you do, though, is click through from the link in the right-hand margin at scotthorton.org, and I'll get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. Won't cost you a thing. Nice little way to help support the show. Again, that's uh, right there in the margin at scotthorton.org. Hey, you want to know what industry is recession-proof? Yes, you're right. Of course. Pot. Scott Horton here to tell you about Green Mill Supercritical Extractors. The SFE Pro and Super Producing Parallel Pro can be calibrated to produce all different types and qualities of cannabis crude oils for all different purposes. These extractors are the most important part of your cannabis oil business. For precision, versatility, and efficiency, GreenMillSuperCritical.com Hey y'all, Scott here. If you want a real education in history and economics, you should check out Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Tom and a really great group of professors and experts have put together an entire education of everything they didn't teach you in school but should have. Follow through from the link in the margin at scotthorton.org for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. All right, well, so let's zoom back out here because I've seen even some pretty angry right-wing hawks who are focusing on the you know catastrophe of the withdrawal saying that, look, the whole war was bad. Obviously, this was 20 years wasted. We shouldn't have done it. There's this new uh, congressman, Peter Mija, right. something like that. And and there's a, a guy named Joe Kent, another uh, kind of uh, right-wing Trump guy running in Washington state. Mad yes. as hell. Just like you would expect, you know, a Fox News guest to be about the withdrawal. Uh, and, and just for the exact reasons that we're talking about here. But then yeah, this- saying, but then saying, the generals and the think tanks and the media, they've lied to us this whole time. They said, I saw this guy, Joe Kent, saying they said that it was worth it for our guys to give their lives for this thing. And yet look at the truth. It's, you know, it's in front of us. We're Here we are 20 years later. The Taliban took over everything in a few weeks. They just walked right in and took over the whole country. Are you kidding me? It's inescapable now by the calendar yeah, and by the result here that this never should have happened. So that's what I really want to hear from you about is your analysis of this beast, as Oliver Stone's movie characters call it when they're, you know, Richard Nixon (laughs) calls it the beast in the Stone movies. This, and I want to add one headline here that just came out uh, by our friend Eli Clifton writing at the Quincy Institute here. Top defense firms spend $1 billion on lobbying during the Afghan war. See $2 trillion return not a bad investment huh one <laughs> uh, yeah, measly what, stinking tiny little old billion dollars <laughs> one yeah well uh, what you're talking about is very important i mean i think that this marks a um a turning point um an inflection point i guess uh, the the pundits like to call it in the history of uh, the U.S. national security state, because it, it to me, uh, tells us that there is a real chance here 
for the first time that uh, that there is a degree of anger toward the military as an institution, toward the brass, the people who have been running the show for the first time since the Cold War began, that is going to demand accountability. And this has been ignored. This, this need for accountability has been ignored for decades and decades. It was ignored after the debacle uh, in South Vietnam. There was no call for accountability. It was simply shoved under the rug. Uh, it was ignored after Iraq. There was no real movement or, or serious discussion of accountability. Um, but this time on Afghanistan, we have a real demand here for accountability. And I think it's a, an issue for which the time has come. We need a mass political movement to get behind this idea of of a real institution that will hold the national security state accountable for what happened in Afghanistan. What's that look Both like? The, yeah, a house on un-American think tank activities committee, or what? Who do? How do we do it? Well, I think what we need is a a national commission outside of Congress, uh, and excluding obviously people who themselves were involved in this. Uh, that that would include people in, from the military who are themselves uh, in favor of accountability and uh, uh, specialists on the military who support the idea of accountability, specialists on the national security state who are in favor of accountability. Um, and and uh, this is a formula which could pr- produce a very important document which would shed light on this that, I mean, of course, the, the news media in their fealty to, to uh, the military, the Pentagon and the national security state will try to avoid covering it, but I don't know if they would be able to if it was given the uh, kind of personal uh, personalities who would serve on it that, that would make it really credible. So, I mean, that's my idea, and I'm gonna write something about that. Yeah. Well, there are, you know, after a generation of this, there are a lot of really great anti-war veterans, including officers of, yep, you know, yep. at least medium rank, you know, lieutenant colonels and so forth, who have a lot to say about this. And I'll tell you, that that guy, Joe Kent, I don't know any other thing about him. I know he's running as an America First Republican in, in Washington State. And I saw him interviewed yep. on the Tucker Carlson show. And Carlson lobs him a softball and says, isn't it a shame that there's never, ever, ever, ever going to be accountability for this? And he just says, oh, yes, there is, too, because, you know, he's going to win his election and the Republicans are going to win the House. And then the way he put it, and I'm not saying I buy this or whatever, but he sure was motivated and meant it when he said it, Gareth. And that was that we're going to investigate the entire Afghan war and all the lies that we were told by the politicians and the generals this whole time. And then he says, and Iraq too, because we know they lied about that too, Tucker. And (laughs) this guy, this guy has stealing his back. That's where the sentiment is, you know, this, this guy is stealing his back. He is, he's, formidable as far as I'm concerned. And, and didn't they drum him out of the military? Or at least that's, the, they're trying to do that. I don't know exactly what the status of it is, but oh, that's I don't know. what I read. I, I, I yeah. honestly know very, very little about him, but I just know that yeah. that kind of sentiment, especially coming from the right, 
then I think this is the one thing where the public really can have their way, where where the government must respect public opinion. They have to have at least one of the party's voting bases. You know, the Colin Powell doctrine, the Weinberger Powell doctrine was you have to have the country united behind you. And the W. Bush doctrine was, well, we'll settle for half. But then <laughs> how are we supposed to have a war on terror when nobody supports it at all? You know, and guess what, Scott? It wasn't just it wasn't just Bush. It was Obama as well. The oh, Obama yeah, administration had the same. Yeah, rules. Obama continued the Bush doctrine there, you know, and with the sure. same half supporting the war, too. Right. Anyway. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, that invention in public opinion is 20 years too late, but it's a really big deal. And, and I think we all need to pay very close attention. to that. But so now here's one thing. I mean, your article is really focused on the media's role in all of this. And I get it. You know, any of us can watch CNN and sort of read Jake Tapper's mind. We understand who this guy is and how he feels about things. He makes himself very clear, you know. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it does seem odd that the media is so unanimous about this, that when Trump launches a missile, they fall in love with him. No matter how right. much they hate him, they go, wow, Donald Trump's the president today. I'll tell you that. Or, you know. And then when Joe Biden, he ends a war and oh my God, do they let him have it? They're like piranha. How dare you end this war? They scream at Blinken, at Sullivan. What is this cult? Who are these people? How does this happen this way? This is a very, very important question, Scott. And, you know, I, I don't know if I can give you the, the absolute complete answer to that. Uh, I think there's some some things about it that we still don't quite understand, but the roots of this go back very far uh, to the beginnings of the Cold War um, and the role that the the uh, corporate media played very early on in cheering on the the Atchisons and the others who were you know pushing very hard for hardline policies, particularly getting rearmament. Rearmament was the key issue for uh, from from the late 1940s uh, into the early 50s, and of course that did take place from 1950 to 52. And once the rearmament was completed, then the the corporate media became a cheering section for the military to expand very rapidly around the world uh, military commitments. Um, and uh, involvement in various uh, in various issues and, and uh, conflicts, uh, particularly Indochina, um, China, of course itself, uh, China Taiwan, um, and uh, the the continued expansion of these commitments, and, and even trying to get commitments in the Middle East. This was part of it. Um, this was one of the big things that the uh, the media served as a cheering section for. Um, they were very much involved in pressuring both Eisenhower and Kennedy to uh, go along with the most extreme demands of the Air Force for uh, missiles uh, that turned out to be uh, unnecessary, not only unnecessary, but provocative and the cause of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, they continued to be uh, the cheering section for the United States getting into the into the war in Vietnam. 
So they had played this role to the hilt. And, um, you know, part of it was the elite, um, uh, all the elite in the, in the media knew all the elite in the national security uh, state. And they palled around together. They, you know, met frequently. And, of course, the media depended on the national security state for stories. They, they were their meat and potatoes, of course, of, of what they were doing day by day. Uh, they, they were dependent on their sources to, to continue to churn out stories that got favorable uh, you know, applause from their editors yeah. and uh, from the shareholders. So, so there was that system that developed during the Cold War that I think continued uh, in the post-Cold War period well, now, Gareth, um, I mean, it used to be easy to say, look, General Electric owns NBC and General Electric yeah. makes engines for the Air Force, you know, clue in. But it's not that simple anymore because GE sold NBC to somebody else or something like that. So there's it was no is, it's just interlocking it? investments from the same banks that invest in the war machine also invest in the large media companies. It's that simple kind of a thing. Or? Sure, sure. You know, there there is an investment. There's no doubt about that. The, the corporate investors in the media, uh, you know, also invest in uh, in stocks that have to do with the national security state and the and the war state. Yeah. Um, so so that that connection still exists. There's no doubt about that. And especially in the Trump years, you know, uh, Glenn Greenwald has done a great job of pointing out how in the Trump years, CNN and MSNBC especially, they just hired like two or three dozen. CIA and FBI and former generals to come in and be their paid yeah. staff consultants yeah. on a full time yeah. basis. Right. They so they're just in the newsroom all day. It's nothing secret about it. So, well, we're going to ask James Clapper what he thinks about what you know. Yeah, this is a new. This is a new and very. And I'm sorry, real quick, because we're real short on time here. Yeah, I mean, I think this this is a development that just shows just how uh, the degree to which the media have become uh, indistinguishable from the national security state. Um, and that, that is a new, that's a new sort of, uh, phase of the development of this whole relationship. That's, uh, that, that does add to that, what we're now talking about to this fealty to the military that was shown, uh, in response to Biden's withdrawal. Yeah. All right. You guys see why I've interviewed Gareth Porter more than 300 times far more than any other guest I've ever had on the show because he's so great on every single thing. This one is called Afghanistan Collapse Reveals Beltway Media's Loyalty to Permanent War State. It's at thegrayzone.com and, of course, in his archive also at antiwar.com. Thank you so much for your time, Gareth. Thanks as always, Scott. All right, you guys, and that is Antiwar Radio for this morning. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm at scotthorton.org and at antiwar.com. And I'm here every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. And uh, I said it wrong. But anyway, see you all next week. (laughs) 